to the Public Safety Innovators Podcast. Connecting you with experts and trendsetters who are leading innovation in law enforcement, private security, and personal protection. And now, your host, Adam Wills. Welcome to episode 20 of the Public Safety Innovators Podcast. Today, we are going to continue in our drone series and talk to Kent Moyer from World Protection Group. Kent and his team are doing innovative things with drones for their private security operations, including taking advantage of the additional capabilities provided through a visual line of sight waiver, night flight waiver, and others. Kent and the folks over at World Protection Group also conduct support operations for law enforcement agencies, and Kent himself is a reserve deputy with the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. Stick around for the end of the show when we talk about Kent's entrepreneurial journey from working his first security job at the Playboy Mansion to owning his own global security firm. All right, let's dive into the show. Kent, welcome to the Public Safety Innovators Podcast. Thank you, Adam. Great to be with you, and I appreciate to be on your podcast because uh, I was excited some of the work that you're doing. Yeah, I was uh, equally as excited when you reached out to me and I saw what you wanted to chat about on the podcast because, quite frankly, I feel like the private security side of things is something that uh, gets left out a little bit every now and then, and the show tends to be very law enforcement centric and focused, which is okay. But initially my intention when I started this podcast, I wanted to talk a bit with public safety professionals like yourself. And what made me even more excited about your questionnaire when you filled it out and let me know what you wanted to chat about is that this is going to be a continuation of our drone series we've been doing. Um, And more specifically, you're coming on to talk about what you are doing in the private security sector with drones that is very unique and innovative and more specifically that you guys are using visual line of sight waivers. Is that right? Absolutely. And so as we talked a little bit earlier, I have the best of both worlds because I'm in law enforcement also, but I'm also doing private security and investigations, intelligence in my real job. And the reality is, is that um, the drone is to me the hottest topic for law enforcement, but also private security. And to be able to use that to save not only civilians' lives, police lives, and even bad guys' lives. So uh, some of the conferences I've been to and whatever, the drone is we can make better tactical decisions, whether it be private security or law enforcement, to be able to stop bad guys. So over at World Protection Group, what kind of things are you guys doing with drones and utilizing the visual line of sight waiver? So I've been in aviation since the 80s, so I'm an instrument rated pilot. And as I get older, I looked at something that would still stimulate my interest in aviation. And then I, I kind of stumbled on it and it was drones. And I thought, we're a high-end executive protection company. We're an international company. And we're a company that does estate security. So, you know, a billionaire has an estate, could be a couple acres. How can we utilize drones to be able to have one guy on the property 24-7 and be able to use the drones? So I, I built the infrastructure and I spent a lot of money doing it. So we got the first waiver we got was night waiver. The second waiver we got was fly over top of people waiver. And the third waiver beyond visual line of sight. We're also working on two more waivers. So, uh, you know, let's say in a, an executive protection type uh, situation, we use them to do advanced work, to take pictures and video footage as route planning, locations, indoor and outdoor of the locations. We also use them on a state to do patrols where we can actually pattern the, the entire property, program that. The drone goes up, flies the property in the perimeter of the property, and checks to make sure that there's no bad guys on the property. And then we did have an incident one time. Well, we actually had two incidents. We had a drone fly into one of our estates, 
and crashed in the estate. So we're, we also are looking at drone countermeasure systems and ways to prevent drones from coming in and doing some, uh, you know, having an explosive or a, a weapon on the drone to attack our clients. But uh, we had a bad guy show up at the uh, estate, walked up, you know, the hill to the estate. Our security agent was monitoring it. And he had a tool bag trying to, with uh, burglar-type tools, to try to break into a property. I didn't have a drone, but if we did have a drone at that time, we would have used the drone with a speaker on. And the drone would have flown up in the air, went outside to the property, and told him that he needs to leave the property so that if he doesn't leave the property, we're going to call the police. Or, in fact, inform him that the police are on their way. So it's a no-brainer. You know, we do risk vulnerability assessments of large properties and clients' office facilities. When we do the uh, these uh, risk vulnerability assessments, we have to take pictures. We have to take video footage. So why not do that with a drone? And the other thing I later got into was drone mapping, 2 and 3D mapping. So we use PIC4D React, which is a 2D mapping system, which is used a lot with law enforcement and we use drone deploy. So now we're able to map an entire estate, map an entire office facility of a client, and even sheriff departments. We can map the each of the sheriff departments because there's been a number of protests and civil unrest. And so when you have that 3D map, you're able to make decisions on where the weaknesses of the sheriff department or where the weaknesses of the estate, and maybe we need extra coverage there and we also have where we have the video footage of the access points and control points so that people cannot get on the property. So even simple things in investigations, we do investigations, husband's cheating on the wife. We believe that the, you know, the wife's calls and says, Hey, um, I, they go to this restaurant every night. I want you to get pictures of them kissing, making out. We can pop the drone up a hundred feet. And nobody even knows that the drone is there. Zoom in on the two people that are look if they're sitting outside and take pictures and and uh, video footage and obviously get that back to the the client so that when the guy comes home the wife surprises them with the pictures. So many different ways that are being utilized in law enforcement, we can use those private drones in uh, our our work also. And the beyond visual line of sight, you know, we we try to use visual observers as much as possible. But it's very important we can still be in our command center or right outside the command center and now fly that drone beyond visual line of sight and by utilizing the remote control and uh, seeing where the drone's at on the remote control. And we also have done training with our people beyond the pilot training. We've trained 11 visual observers. We're training people in disaster response. So what we're trying to do also is build relationships with law enforcement. So if there's a natural disaster, terrorist attack or whatever, they can call us. And the fact that I am a already sworn um, law enforcement officer makes them have a comfort level of bringing in our company to be able to help them and assist them if they need it. So I imagine that visual line of sight waiver is really excellent for large scale events and gatherings and that sort of thing. Is that is that primarily what your intention or what your motivation was in getting the visual line of sight waiver? Or did you have a specific use case in mind when you chose to apply for that? So our strategy and our wanting to use drones are both as a private company to assist law enforcement. And so there are a number of law enforcement agencies that are not allowed to go up and film protests and civil unrest. Well, they can contract with a private company that could do that. And so utilizing that beyond visual line of sight waiver allows us to be able to assist law enforcement and to be able to get the footage that they need. And, you know, some of the drones, we could stream that uh, footage into a command center. Uh, a mobile command center. So, you know, we have uh, drones that have thermal imaging cameras on it so that it would be good for night. And, and in addition, you know, we have another, uh, it's called Live Deck, and Live Deck connects to the drone. We put Live Deck in a command center, attach it to a, a big screen TV, and now 
that footage is being streamed right into the command center for them to be able to view and then make decisions on what to do. So I imagine you're you're able to capture evidence that way then too, especially in the circumstances of these riots where maybe you, as you're flying over the crowd, you're able to identify individuals who are instigators or are uh, causing damage to property, you know, committing some sort of crime that you identify. You're able to, I assume, take photos of those individuals and and share that with with law enforcement. Then, yes. So when I started our drone program. I became the guinea pig and I went to almost every drone. You know, I, I did a lot of uh, courses with dart drones. I also then decided I want to complement and have the post certified California post certified drone training. So I went to LA County regional training center and these guys are amazing. And so I did most of their courses. So I already had the part 107 license, so I didn't have to do that, but I did the crime scene and accident scene investigation. So that is California post certified. So now I can go between the private and 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 the law enforcement sector and and say that I'm post certified in crime scene accident scene investigation and be able to capture all the video footage or pictures we need on any protest, civil unrest, or any crime scene and uh, be able to use that and uh, help them and assist them. So. I did night operations. I did advanced operations. Advanced operations, I believe, was post-certified. Also, night operations wasn't. I took the drone manager's course. So what I did was, on a, on a scale, balance the private sector drone training with the law enforcement drone training. Yeah, that's smart. That's real smart. Uh, I think that positions you in a very unique way as well to have that expertise on both sides of the aisle and you have everything in place. You have the infrastructure, the equipment, the things that you need and the knowledge in order to be able to quickly deploy in any of those situations really to cover either side of those circumstances. I think that's uh, that's pretty neat and certainly makes you very unique. We also put together a 65 page training manual. So there, there are a lot of things that we, you know, the equipment we have is state of the art equipment. We have the best drones. We have the chargers that can charge the drones without any power source out in the field. We have all the equipment that most small to medium sized law enforcement agencies have. We probably have, uh, I'm going to take an estimate of about 15 drones and uh, they're all the best drones in the industry that are being used. And so we have a number of pilots. We're training four more pilots. And then because of COVID hit, we our goal is we want all those pilots to be trained in disaster response to support law enforcement also. So they have FEMA training, 100, 200 level. I've done three. I've done seven, 800 FEMA level. So we want to be able to, as a company, assist law enforcement and plug right into the incident command system and know exactly what to do and how to sure fit in that system, you know, between fire, law enforcement, and and uh, medical rescue, that kind of thing. Yeah. So you, uh, you've mentioned already several software programs that, that you guys use, you know, Pix4D and Drone Deploy and LiveDeck. And, and you kind of started to go here already in the, the last comment you just made about drones specifically, the hardware side of things. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. I guess we've talked now about a multitude of different deployment situations. And I'm curious to hear from somebody like yourself who has utilized drones in so many different use cases. Are there, are there drones specifically that are kind of your go-to that you feel like are the most versatile for most circumstances? Or are there any that you feel like are your, your go-to for specific incidents that aren't necessarily your go-to for everything. I, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on actual drone hardware that's out there and, and what works well and what doesn't. Well, I think uh, you have to have a variety of different types of drones. You can't just go with one company because they all are a little bit different. And so I'll give you a couple examples. The best mapping drone is a Phantom 4 Pro 2. We have that drone. So I like to use that drone for 2 and 3D mapping, and that's typically what I would use. You know, you have to have a drone that is good for indoor operations because a lot of these drones are not designed for law enforcement and are not designed to go indoors and to be able to search rooms and look for bad guys in a room. The best drone that we use for that is a, a Mavic Air. 
Now, the flight time isn't that high, but it is still a good drone that is, it, it, it works well indoors. And uh, the backup to that would be the Mavic Air 2. So outdoors, if you're doing search and rescue, you want to, I like the Autel Duel. We have an Autel Duel we just bought. It's got uh, the 640 thermal. It's got 360 sensors. It's got a 40-minute flight time. But also we have two Enterprise drones. So we also have the uh, Enterprise Duel and we have the Enterprise Zoom. And so I like both of the DJI drones there. The thermal on the Enterprise Duel isn't as good as the Autel. When I did a lot of the scenario training, you know, scenario training, we got a bad guy in a car, we want to perch a drone outside the car on the windshield, all, all of a sudden the bad guy gets out, we got to take off with the bad guy. I think the desired goal is, is you want to have multiple drones up at one time, whether it be a protest, whether it be civil unrest, whether it be uh, we're chasing a bad guy, you know, running in the, in the bushes somewhere. You want to have a drone up doing overwatch, and then you want to have a specific drone that is maybe following the bad guy, tracking the bad guy. So I think the key is with any department is, I think that the departments that I really like and like to follow, you know, you had Fritz Reber on uh, Chula Vista is, you know, I've trained with a couple of their guys. Chula Vista, Huntington Beach is uh, outstanding. So these small to medium agencies really seem to have excelled beyond some of the bigger agencies in terms of what they're able to do with drones. Like I said, some uh, agencies are not allowed to use drones for protests and civil unrest. LAPD just got permission to do that and to be able to film that. I don't think uh, LA County Sheriff has that permission yet. So that's where, you know, I think there should be a good private uh, law enforcement partnership. So if they can't do certain things, we'll take the liability and responsibility on because we're able to do it as a private company. I like that concept about that you shared, ensuring that it's really not just a single drone deployment, right? Every, every situation is different, but you're saying that in most cases, you should really have multiple drones to be able to serve different functions within that scenario. You know, I like that idea of overwatch, right? I mean, that's, that's really a concept that we train on regularly in, in law enforcement anyway, is this idea of having an overwatch, you know, it's a, it's a backup, right? And that's a really smart idea. I'm curious though, in, in a deployment situation like that, is it a one-to-one situation where you need to have one pilot per drone or does that vary depending upon the drone you're flying? Maybe there are certain drones that are a bit more autonomous than others where you can have a pilot flying multiple. I think, each situation is different. Obviously, there are departments. Um, I remember going to a drone conference about two years ago in Renton PD. Their goal was they wanted to have a drone in every patrol car. And I think that's a great idea. I think the key is if you can always use a, a drone operator and a visual observer, that's the best and the best in terms of safety. But many times, if there is a, a drone pilot going to the scene, he may launch that drone before a second person can get there. And I think uh, that decision has to be made, uh, you know, based on what the incident is. But I, I uh, really believe, I, th- I think ideally you want to have a visual observer and a drone operator if at all possible. And if you're not able to, then obviously you got to go with the guy that is first person on the scene and utilize him. The other drone that I was really impressed by and exposed to recently, one of the law enforcement training was the Matrice 300, which is a DJI drone. And so the concept with that drone is, is you could have two remote pilots. And so I think the drone capabilities is they can fly that drone nine miles before they do a battery change. And so you could have one pilot at mile one and another pilot at mile six and halfway through the mission, you can change the pilot that the other pilot takes over the remote and flies that drone. You also can have where one remote is is doing the camera work. So you're not even worried about the camera work. One guy's flying the drone, one guy's doing the video footage in the camera. So I think that's, that's a breakthrough cool. drone. You know, not a lot of the smaller to medium-sized departments can afford a drone like that. I think it's about 25000 bucks, And then, obviously, the payloads that you have to put on it. I think that uh, you're going to see in the next five years that uh, I think there's a fear with the public because they think drones, Iraq, Afghanistan. But these are drones that are going to help 
make better tactical decisions when there is a bad guy or active shooter, you know, even clearing a crime scene or an accident scene on a highway, you're going to speed up that process. And again, going back to the private security sector, our method of doing executive protection is based on the secret service way of doing protection. And most of my training I've gone to some great schools and the law enforcement schools are some are military style executive protection. Some are eclectic and some are what I kind of uh, developed a phrase called buddy guards, you know, the Hollywood celebrity types, (laughs) not all of them, but a lot of it is very eclectic and dysfunctional, but we go with the secret service model in taking that to the private sector. And so utilizing drones and where I would have a drone if we're doing a guy's getting out of a car and he's going on an office building. I got a drone doing overwatch to make sure that that route is clear and there's just no bad guys and that they can zoom in on an individual person who may look a little bit suspicious until the person's in the building. So drones are going to be used more and more in a proactive manner to prevent crime versus reactive manner, which is typically in uh, law enforcement. You know, when I hear that drones are being deployed on calls, 911 calls, and the drone is out there faster than the patrol car, I'm like, I'm blown away. I mean, I, I'm, yeah. I'm like, yeah. I can't believe it. And, but I just think that, that that's, that's the direction we need to go. And as that patrol deputy is going or patrol police officer is going to the scene, the drone's there and say, uh, there's nothing here. There's no problem. Uh, you can go back and get on the next call, take the next call. So, some of the work that I'm seeing is like, uh, I think in about five years, we're going to be like nobody in the public is going to realize this was the way to go with drones, not only in law enforcement, but also in the, the private sector and private security. So how do you train the operator, whether this is from a law enforcement or a private security perspective, how do you train the operator to ensure that they maintain their situational awareness while they're flying that drone? Because I mean, I I look at my kids, right? My kids, when they are are on their smartphone or on their tablet, their nose is so buried in that thing, paying attention to what they're doing. They have no idea what's going on around them. And I anticipate that there's probably a very similar situation that occurs when somebody's flying a drone. How do you teach them to maintain situational awareness? Well, if it's an individual operator, it's very difficult. And number two, you need to focus on where the drone's at, not just be tunnel vision into looking at the drone on the remote control or on your cell phone or the crystal sky or the DJI remote. So you got to have that balance of looking at the drone as well as looking at the remote. But also, you know, and there's been some discussions with me and law enforcement that uh, if law enforcement cannot film a protest, there were discussions about, well, I'll go out and film the protest. Well, one of the biggest concerns is, what if I have a drone up in the sky and I'm filming a protest and somebody hits me over the head with a pipe? Now we got a drone up and I'm the operator and I cannot control that drone. And all of a sudden the drone comes down and crash. So it's almost like you need a visual observer on the pilot. And that visual observer is observing what is going on around that pilot to make sure that there there isn't any type of incident like that. Because uh, one of the things that I think that drones are not being utilized to the level they should is with the protests and civil unrest. And I will also tell you that when there are protests and civil unrest, there are civilian drones up flying over top of people illegally, and police don't know what to do about it. I've heard radio calls where they're not sure what to do and how to handle when that drone's up in the air. And obviously they got to find the pilot because it's illegal to do that. And there's limitations of what a, you know, a local law enforcement can do, but they can get the serial number of the drone and information of who the pilot is reported to the FAA and let them investigate it. But I'm always equally concerned about, obviously we're getting our drone program up running and getting it uh, fully operational and and doing missions. But I'm equally concerned about the countermeasures. And I can tell you that two years ago, no stadium in the United States had any type of countermeasures in place that if a drone that had a weapon or an explosive on it flew into a stadium, uh, even if it's uh, you know a TFR over the stadium says you can't fly over the stadium, 
they still could do it and they would not be able to stop that drone that is weaponized. So what sort of countermeasures are there now that, that are able to deal with that sort of thing? Well, there is a system and DJI has the system. Now, it only detects DJI drones, and that system is called Aeroscope, and it is being utilized, and, you know, there is a stadium that I'm aware of that they're utilizing this system. What the system will do is alert you where a drone is at and where the drone is at in reference to the, uh, the stadium. So if it's in the TFR area, the restricted airspace area, the only thing you can do is you know where the drone is at send a patrol car out to try to find out where the pilot is and obviously report it to the FAA to alert the FAA and maybe an airport if it's close to an airport that, hey, there's a drone in restricted airspace and we just want to make everybody aware of it. Not a lot you can do beyond that right now. Now, there are systems that if you see the drone, you could have a system that basically interrupts the drone with the remote control. But the problem with a type of system like that is, is then what do you do if you do that and the drone's over a crowd of people and it comes crashing <laughs> down on people? Yeah, and it's got a bomb on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's the issue. So I don't think that there's any system, that, and, and that's another course I'm taking on countermeasures. The only thing that I see that I think is a reputable system and is being used at some airports is Aeroscope. It's a DJI product. And if the drone is registered and it has an email registration and a cell phone registration and a name on the FAA drone zone, then you possibly could send them an email or call them on the phone and say, hey, we detected that your drone's in restricted airspace and try to do it in a nice way to encourage the guy to get out of the airspace. So that's another possibility of how to manage it. But for the most part, I think the key is that if there is, that you do suspect that there's a weapon or a bomb or whatever on that drone, then there has to be a decision made of, do we want to evacuate the stadium? Do we want to evacuate uh, and deal with that that issue? So to say the least, there is a long, long ways uh, for counter drone technology to progress before we have a real viable solution. Yes, there are drone countermeasures technology being used with the military, but some of that is shoot the drone out of the sky, disrupt the remote between the drone and, and so that the drone is disconnected from the remote. But all of those systems may work in a military setting, but in the United States, if all of a sudden a drone flies over top and you use some kind of countermeasure system and did that, it hit five people, that would be a, a real big problem. So yeah, I and think again, that, I think your your biggest challenge there is what, what if there's, like you said, a payload on that drone? Um, yes. How do you how do you take that down safely? Yes. Now, the Super Bowl and some of these major events, they're using a military type system, and they're using it because if they do get the intel, there's some kind of weapon or explosive on there, then they have to make a decision to do they want to take that drone down. There are even systems where it actually shoots up to the drone and it deploys like a a net that that goes around the drone, but the drone's still going to come down to the ground. And then what do you do when it lands on some innocent person? That's, That's the issue and the concern. Yeah, sure. Today on Chapter 8 of the Marketing Minute, I want to talk to you about productivity and mindset. Imagine how freeing it would be to begin each day refreshed and optimistic and end each day without feeling completely overwhelmed. Many of you listening to this show are already copreneurs or are getting ready to dive in and start your own business. The thing about entrepreneurship is the amount of work can be immense at times. The buck stops with you and that means you have to accomplish everything that needs to be done to make your budding business a success. If you're trying to start your business while still working a full-time job, the overwhelm is compounded that much further. A recent study showed that the average person has over 30 items on their daily to-do list and 41% of those tasks are never done. What happens when you start the day with over 30 items on your to-do list? You look at it, recognize it's not feasible, and immediately the overwhelm sets in before you can even get started. So you lay down the gas and get after it. 
Even if you have your most productive day yet, you still end the day with several tasks unchecked. Immediately you feel like a failure. If you bookend every day with overwhelm and failure, how long do you think you'll last? How long do you think your entrepreneurial journey will actually be? But guys, it doesn't need to be that way. Experiencing this overwhelm myself, I started to study the habits of successful entrepreneurs. Here's what I found. Successful people set out each day to accomplish the big three. These are the three major tasks that absolutely have to be done that day, otherwise your business will crumble. Accomplish those tasks and then everything else is just gravy. Now, instead, you can start each day feeling like it's going to be a good day and end your day knowing that you conquered it. That's it for today's Marketing Minute. Please check out every chapter of the Marketing Minute by going to psi.chat forward slash marketing minute. Now let's get back into the show. Well, since we're kind of talking about future technology here anyway, I'm curious, uh, what are your thoughts on the future of drone usage in law enforcement and private security look like? Do you, like, do you envision maybe use cases right now where a drone would be useful for you, yet the technology isn't really there yet in order to employ it in a certain way, but you think that this is where it's going? Well, I think that the technology is evolving faster than I can keep up with it. And, and I'm an older guy. So uh, somebody 20 years younger than me, uh, that's their world, that, that new technology. But I think that the, uh, I, I like what I'm hearing that when a 911 call comes in, there are stations of drones around a city or a town. And that drone deploys faster and gets there faster than the actual patrol officer to be able to assess the situation. And I could even see where the patrol officer has that footage of the drone on scene and he's maybe arriving five or 10 minutes later. And let's say it's an active shooter. He's in a position to see where that active shooter is, what type of weapon he has. Has there been people shot? Do we need to dispatch medical? So that when he goes into that situation, he's in a position to be able to make better decisions and not just like, all of a sudden, we got a bad guy in a building, and we send the, the SWAT team in, and three guys get shot. So I, I like the fact that drones are going to be used more and more in a proactive manner. And the mapping systems on, on the drones, I'm, I'm so excited about, like, drone deploy and PIX4D. These mapping systems are unbelievable. And I think that we need to start thinking about mapping schools and mapping county buildings and putting these maps into the risk vulnerability assessments, again, more to focus on a proactive way of dealing with threats and, uh, you know, shooters, because shooting and, and, and crime and, and guns and all the stuff, crime all over the country is going up with shootings and homicides right now. And the only way you're going to stop any of this is be proactive by utilizing drones to be able to be deployed immediately even faster than the patrol car can get there to be able to say, here's the situation. It's going to a command center. There's a tactical commander there telling the patrol officer what he, what he thinks he should do prior to the arrival of that patrol officer. I love the DFR or drones as a first responder concept. I think the biggest downside to it right now and where it really lacks uh, applicability is it really can only be used in an urban environment because of the the technology and as far as how far you can fly that drone from a central command station. And so I wonder what are your thoughts on as the technology advances, do you see that becoming a more viable option for rural areas to be able to set up their own DFR program? Or are we a long ways out from something like that? No, I think uh, smaller departments in a rural area should be setting it up right now. And I, and I think that it could be utilized, um, you know, in, in, uh, in a very short period of time. I, I think that, uh, what, what I'm encouraged to see is like LA County Regional Training Center. I don't know what's happening all over the United States, but they're putting together these post-certified courses. And what a better way to protect from liability 
is to have it certified by California law enforcement, these courses. And that's where we should be sending our people to get trained. And, and you can do a balance between the private sector because there are private sector courses that are sometimes even better than the law enforcement. But having the balance so that the we get the formal training that we need. And, you know, for example, I kind of got into the mapping thing by accident and I decided to take a mapping course. And I'm like thinking, do I really need this? And then it dawned on me after I did the mapping course. Yeah, I can find a hundred ways to use it in, in my private security with mapping of our clients' locations, as well as law enforcement. And even when there's downtime, I could turn around and say, hey, why don't we put together a unit and go over and start doing the mapping of all of our sheriff stations? And I think that could be done in a very short period of time because you could take a sheriff station. I'm going to take an estimate. If it's maybe an acre, you can map that thing in about 15 minutes, maybe less, download it, and now you got a 3D map in about 15 minutes. And the way the mapping systems work is I don't fly the drone. All I do is create the map that I want to do, push a button, connect it to drone deploy, it flies itself, and then it comes back and lands. And then all I do is download the 3D map. And what that 3D map will do is, is we've had protests at sheriff stations and protests at police departments. So you'll be able to see, we have a driveway and you'll be able to know the measurement of the driveway and say, we need to put two patrol cars in that driveway to block bad guys or protesters from coming in that driveway into the back uh, part of the parking lot. And also let's set the perimeter up and let's set it up 500 feet from the outside of the law enforcement agency. So there's so many advantages of, of things that we're not doing yet that uh, could be done. And I don't know many uh, law enforcement agencies are doing drone video footage and pictures on every crime scene and every accident scene. I know some departments that are doing it, but I see down the road that every department should be doing it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing just how the future shapes how drones are applied. And and I think uh, we're going to see a lot more coming up than what even we can imagine now. Let's talk about Let's talk about you, your background, a little bit more about World Protection Group, what you guys do. So what's sort of your origin story, if you would, because I was, I got a question as I was reading through your bio, I'm thinking, well, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Because I knew that you mentioned that you have done some law enforcement work as a reserve and whatnot, but I wasn't, I wasn't really sure. Where did you start? Did you start in private security and then start to do reserve work in law enforcement? Was it the other way around? How did you get to where you are today? So I moved out to California after a bad divorce from uh, New York City. I, I'm from Pennsylvania, New York. Moved out here. Didn't have any any money and I didn't have a job. And so I was joked around with friends of mine. So I said, I'm going to get a job as a security guard and, and just have a little fun. And so what happened was I'm a martial artist and I also have had martial arts schools in my life. So I opened a martial arts school on Melrose Avenue near Fairfax in Los Angeles, met a friend, friend worked for Playboy Enterprises. And he said, you would be so great to come into Playboy and work as a protection agent. You could start the corporate office because of your martial arts background. So little did I realize martial arts has very little to do with um, executive protection. It is a tool that we use. And if you're a black belt, that's great. So I got a job with Playboy and I got all my licenses. And when I jump into something, I usually jump into it like full blast. I'm a little maybe extreme, but I'm extreme in a good way. I'm not extreme like in, in, uh, in a crazy way. So I get into Playboy and I realize if I'm going to be what would be classified as a bodyguard or what I call executive protection. I got to get formal training and you're from Colorado. So there's a school in Colorado called executive security international. And I'm one of 22 people that graduated that school with a two year degree in executive protection. And, and the other half of the degree is in protective intelligence. And at, the, at that time, when I went to the school, playboy paid for, like 4,000 bucks in the school and because it was related to the job that I was doing. So I started the corporate office and then went to the mansion and I worked at the mansion for probably almost five, six years. And uh, that was my start in the industry. 
and I enjoyed it. And I wasn't in law enforcement at that time. I would probably and, have enjoyed that too, just for the record, um, working uh, at Playboy. Yeah. Uh, the the fringe <laughs> benefits were excellent. And I don't, I don't mean fooling around with playmates. Uh, just, um, we had the Playboy channel in the command center that you could watch at nighttime. So, uh, you know, but, uh, it, it was a fun job. Uh, and, and I had a lot of fun. I learned a lot and learned that protection work wasn't about hiring a bunch of off duty cops because the, Law enforcement training, which you learn in the academy, is night and day difference from the protection training. And so from a protection training standpoint, I probably accumulated over 2,000 hours of training, maybe more. And then a buddy of mine said to me, you know, I'm at Orange County Sheriff. You know, we want to get more people into the reserve program at Orange County. And would you have an interest? And, you know, my father was a a career police officer, and uh, my parents only knew they had a restaurant also, so they worked three jobs each, you know, trying to raise six kids. So I said, yeah, I'd be interested in, I don't know whether I can get in or not, but let me try. And I got in Orange County Sheriff Department. Then I went to their academy and I lived in Los Angeles. So I had to commute down to Orange County, hour and a half, you know, maybe sometimes two hours. Um, and I became a reserve deputy with Orange County Sheriff. And I came in as a specialist, and I came in as a specialist to basically train and run and operate the Dignitary Protection Unit and to work the intel and investigations. Our, our parent unit was investigations. And uh, so we had about 15 people in, in my unit. There was a captain above me, and he was a career law enforcement officer. He was a phenomenal person and uh, mentored me. We're still friends to this day. And then I did this for about 10 years and all of a sudden I was approached and people, I I know my background check, the person said to me at LA County Sheriff, he said, you're lying to me. We would never come to recruit you. It actually was the truth. I had two sergeants and a lieutenant said to me, we heard about what you're doing down there. We'd like you to come up and do it here in Los Angeles. And I said, great. (laughs) I said, I live in Los Angeles, so I would not have to commute anymore. And so then I had to go through the full background check again, at, at which I did two full back background checks. And they're not fun, as you know. You know, you go through uh-huh. 25 pages of filling out paperwork, and polygraphs, and psychology testing. And, and, and again, I passed and uh, got into L.A. County Sheriff. And I was brought in again to start and help them with their dignitary protection unit and did that for a number of years. And then I kind of got into more now the OSINT, the open source Intel, work out of emergency operations. And I'm, you know, also in conversations about being involved in the drone program. And, um, and, and I'm excited about that. So, and, and I love doing both. I don't know if I could ever do law enforcement on a full-time thing because I just hate the way law enforcement is treated. And when my father was a police officer and it was a small little town and we, we did barbecues every weekend with all the cops and volleyball and wiffle balls, softball, uh, you know, baseball, they'd all come to our, our house. We'd go to their house. But if there was a cop car behind me and I was going a little too fast and it was my dad's friend, out of respect, I'd slow down and I was in a little fear, you know, that I'd get a ticket or something. And then my dad would get upset with me. So I've always had a tremendous uh, respect for law enforcement people and what they have to go through. And just today, the way the culture is in the United States just sickens me to see what is going Agreed. on. So I still want to stay into law enforcement to try to help in any way I can. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still like a little kid, 25 years old that I just love what I do. And I love uh, contributing what I can to the sheriff department. So what point in that story did World Protection Group become an official thing? Okay. So after I left Playboy, I then worked for two companies. They were run pretty poorly. And then I changed to another company. It's called Vance International. Chuck Vance was married to Susan Ford, who was President Ford's daughter. And I worked under a former director and two deputy directors in Secret Service. It was a very first-class executive protection company was there for many years and I was in the L- their LA office. And But what happened is they eventually sold the company and closed the LA office. 
client says to me, what do you want to do? I says, I'm tired of working for other companies. I have a license myself. I'd like to start my own company. And that's what I did. 2001, I started the World Protection Group. And then, um, you know, we built the company into an international company. So we do protection details all over the world. We have an office in Mexico. We have an office in Shanghai, New York, out in Los Angeles. It's very geared to high-end billionaires, celebrities, entertainment companies, corporations. So it, it is not your typical uniform guard company. And I had no desire to build a huge company. It was more of a boutique. And I wanted to specialize on high-end type protection, utilizing the, the latest technology. I would say a lot of the technology that we use is way ahead of my sheriff department. We've added some services that are unique to the industry. We do privacy and confidentiality. Somebody wants to create an anonymous lifestyle, we can help them do that. We set up anonymous phones for our clients. We got into the drones. I think we're probably the leading company. I don't think there's any company that has the three waivers that we do in the private security industry. I could be wrong. And we're actively wanting to use uh, and, and increase the amount that we use our drones in investigations and executive protection. And the other thing I realized that I didn't have any formal business school. So I went to, I decided I wanted to go to Wharton Business School and I went to Wharton Business School, graduated, done a number of other courses at Wharton. And then I suddenly realized that I, I think maybe you could relate to this. Many security companies, they put on their website pictures of guns, 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 and repelling out of helicopters. And I realized that this industry were service industry. And that really what we need to focus on is creating a gold standard of service. And so I then went and I went to Wharton and I studied the Bocconi Business School in Milan, Italy, strategic manager of luxury businesses. I also last year went to HEC Paris University studying the luxury in the Ritz-Carlton. And so we created a gold standard of service of how we interact and how we deliver our service to our clients that is comparable to the Ritz-Carlton levels of where we anticipate the needs of the client. We respond faster than other security companies typically respond. And we, we trained everybody in our company, including the uniformed security officer, in that gold standard of uh, service. So that was important to me also, and it still is extremely important. And I wanted to create some differentials that this is that we're, we're different. We're unique. We look at the industry very different. You'll never find a social media post with me and a gun because I believe that the gun is the most useless tool in our in protection work. And if you sure. have to use the gun, you've failed. So where other companies, that's pictures all day long of here's my me going to the range and here's all the shots that I have within the 7 to 10 range. And here's me bench pressing 400 pounds. We laugh at that stuff because we firmly believe it's about good communications, getting, uh, you know, delivering a great service. And look, we have to have all those other skills and we do have those skills, but we don't wear those on our sleeve and we more focus on the service model. And it's exceptional that you, you figured that out on your own. I mean, we, uh, have talked about that a little bit on this show and, and certainly, uh, for, for those of you that listen to some of the chapters of the marketing minute that, that comes on in, in the mid roll, You've heard me say these sort of things before, and that's that it's it's really not about you. When you market your business, you have to focus on your customer and the story that they're living. We need to enter into their story, not the other way around. And so I think it's absolutely exceptional that you identified that on your own and started to determine how to how to connect in a way that was authentic with your audience. And you, you mentioned to me that you didn't have any formal business background or training. And, you know, that resonated with me as well, because as I've said before, it, I don't think that's necessary. You don't need to have an MBA to be an entrepreneur and start your own business. And in fact, I'll, I'll share with you guys a little resource I actually uh, uh, shared with Kent before the show amazing book that just came out recently called Business Made Simple. And it's essentially an MBA in 60 days. I mean, it covers everything from leadership to time management and marketing and productivity, all sorts of things. And, you know, this day and age, that's one of the amazing things about technology. We just don't 
necessarily need to have that formal uh, certificate in our hands. And anyway, I'll throw it out there to anybody that listens to the show and is a loyal listener of the show. If you want a copy of that book, just shoot me an email, adam at psi.chat, and I will send you a copy. So thanks for sharing that, Ken. I think that's an inspirational story about you know how you went from being the guy that was taking orders, working for the man, <laughs> and then decided... I'm going to start my own thing. I'm going to start my own business and be damned if I have a degree that says that I should be a business owner or not. I'm just going to do it and I'm going to pay attention to who my customer is and focus on their needs. And it's led you to where you are today in being successful. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, Elon Musk came out with a quote not too long ago. I forget the exact quote, but he basically said there are too many MBAs. And they're focused on the financials rather than focused on operational things and being able to deliver the wow factor, anticipate the needs of the client, and to be three steps ahead of what the client thinks to be able to deliver a gold standard service. And I think he's right. I mean, you know, I've had people that work for me that have MBAs and high level degrees, and most of them aren't very good at just running a smaller boutique company. You know, they can give you statistics and all day long, but they don't understand the uh, limitations that a small business have and to be able to translate how can we get more business and how can we deliver a better service to our clients to retain the clients. My first client, who is an entertainment company, has been with me for 21 years. And at one point I was their head of security. And so that's the long-term relationship that you, you have to develop an emotional connection with your client because if you don't, in security, 70% of security is a commodity. It's basically you call up three security firms, you find out what the bill rates are, and they go with the lowest rate. And so there's no connection to you. And so we can't compete with that. We, we don't want to compete with that. And we don't do very well in RFPs. Where we're good at is once we get a client is develop that relationship that they rely on you for everything. And look, if I don't know everything, I can, I can find a resource and I have probably a resource that can give me the answer to be able to give that answer to the client. And the, the other thing is many times in my industry, people lie to clients and I will not lie to a client. I will tell the client, I don't know, or I can't do that or pass on something and say, here's a company that can maybe help you better than I can. I built my business on all I have is my ethics and integrity. And when I go to bed at night, if I throw that out the window, then uh, then all the money in the world is not worth it to me. So, yeah, I mean, essentially what you're talking about there, Kent, is return on investment and a a personal relationship in many, many cases is part of a return on investment, especially in a service-based industry like like you're in. And and I'll actually, I'll throw out here something from the Business Made Simple book. It's broken down into 60 days, like I said. And day one, the main concept or principle is that a value-driven professional, and I would argue that it also means a value-driven business, sees themselves as an economic product on the open market. And what that means is that you are out there open for trade, right? And so ultimately, when somebody is trying to determine whether or not they want to work with you, it's based upon the idea of what am I going to get in return? Is this going to be a positive investment for me? And so if you look at yourself as a economic product on an open market, where you're focused on always getting an abundance of return on investment for whoever your customer is. And yes, like I said, relationships can be part of that return on investment, then you're going to succeed and do well. And I think you figured that out and whether you really put it that way uh, or not, Kent, that that's essentially the principle that you're applying in what you're doing. And, and that's why you've been successful. Yeah. When I did this whole uh, luxury mindset, we created another entity of the company called 001. If you look at that website, it's a night and day difference of WPG. And we geared that to billionaires because we also believe that protection of billionaires is not just the physical protection and being bodyguards of them. It is also protecting the confidentiality of them and the removal of their vulnerable information on the internet. 
And so it's, it's very much a different approach. For example, Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos had the fact that he was cheating on his wife leaked out. And there are a lot of different theories of how that happened. From what I'm told, basically, the girlfriend showed her brother and the brother went to the National Enquirer and, you know, wanted to sell the story. And the security firm that was doing it said it was the Saudi Arabia that uh, was hacking into his phone. I don't think it was Saudi Arabia. But what we do is we set up anonymous phones and we set them up with with uh, full encrypted communications. And so these are unique and different things. There's no security company out there doing this stuff, but there's no trace to Jeff Bezos in that phone or his girlfriend in the phone because the phone is paid for by cash. We put a prepaid SIM card in the phone and he will never, you know, if, if, a, if a high net worth person wants a phone like this, they will na- never make or receive a phone call from that phone, the real number of that phone. So I'm just giving you the phone example, but that's the level of sophistication that we do with our privacy and removal of our clients' information. So for example, myself, I have a fake Amazon account, a fake Uber account, and uh, I paid for something with a prepaid fake credit card. And so I was looking, there was $3.68 on that credit card. I wanted to figure out how can I use that to enhance my privacy? So what I did was I saw the Wall Street Journal was doing $1.99 for two months of the Wall Street Journal. I paid for it with a fake credit card and a fake name and a fake email and fake phone number and sent it to my real address. Hmm. So now on the database goes a different person on my real address. Yeah. Well, you so, guys are certainly thinking through every detail. <laughs> well, but but we do that with our protection work also. Not only when we protect somebody, there are so many issues that you can go on YouTube. It's a treasure trove of bodyguard failures. So this whole industry is about being sophisticated and using your brain, not posting social media posts of you bench pressing 400 pounds. That's our mindset. We, everything is driven by creating a higher level of protection that is, is not happening within this industry. Sure. Well, Kent, how about some closing thoughts? Do you have anything, an overarching concept you want to end on, something to share? What's your, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I appreciate you being, being on your podcast, number one. Number two, I like the fact that you're career law enforcement, you made the transition into private, and, and I'm looking forward to reading this book and uh, going to the, uh, you know, the conference, or I guess it would be a conference. Summit. Uh, summit, summit, yes, yep. summit. Yep, the Business um, Made Simple Summit, yep. Because I'm, I'm a lifelong learner and I, I enjoy hearing so many different, you know, ideas on business. And also I like the, the law enforcement part of what you're doing because I think that, you know, helping police and, and people transition in the private sector, especially if they want to get into private security, you know, I've done also some coaching and uh, we had a, where I took five people and I coached them for six months. At the end of six months, I gave the winner a thousand bucks. And, and some of those, a couple of those people were law enforcement people. And I did it to try to give back to help people, you know, that are in law enforcement or in that want to get in the private uh, security industry to help them to, to figure out a career path. So I think there are a lot of things that we have in common. And I think that uh, I would, I would say, uh, I think a lot of it has to do with is uh, you got to be creative in the industry, whether, whether it be in law enforcement, uh, private security, or in, in your business, you got to be creative and unique. And that's what uh, people are attracted to. So I, I appreciate you allowing me to be on your podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think this has been an excellent show. It's been great to have you on. We certainly talked about a lot and covered a number of different topics. And I think we've uh, even left ourselves some space that we could probably talk for another hour. So maybe we need to uh, consider having you back on the show at some point. That'd be great. Happy to come back anytime. All right. Well, why don't you let everybody know that's listening? How can they connect with you? Where would you like them to go? Websites, social media, whatever. Well, I'm I'm on social media and most of it is in my name, Kent Moyer. Uh, the company is the World Protection Group. We're on social media also. Our company phone number is 310-390-6646. And 
I'm also a guy that likes to help people. So uh, even yourself, if there's any way I can help you in the future, let me know. And, you know, many times people that don't have money that are able to pay for services like we have, you know, they get a stalker, they get a problem or they get somebody that, uh, you know, what do I do in a situation like this? We're happy to give them advice. And uh, many times uh, we've helped people and even helped them get restraining orders to stop some threats and whatever. So we're always here to be a resource to anybody uh, that is in need of uh, professional services. Awesome. Well, I will put all of your contact information in the show notes for this episode as well. I mean, we talked about so many things today. I wrote a list down as we were going of all the different uh, tools and, and, and hardware and things that you referenced. And I'll put links in case anybody was listening to that going, oh my gosh, how am I going to remember to go check out these things that he talked about? I'm going to have links for all of that in the show notes as well. You can check out the show notes by just going to psi.chat forward slash zero two zero for episode 20 so psi.chat forward slash zero two zero to check out the show notes and we'll catch you on the next show thanks again thanks adam have a great day you too Hey, thanks for sticking around till the end of the show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review at psi.chat forward slash review. I would love to hear your feedback and it will also help other public safety innovators like yourself find the show. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode. Just go to psi.chat, click on episodes and search this episode number and you'll find all the links, descriptions and resources we talked about. And if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe and you'll be notified when the next episode is live. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll catch you guys on the next episode.